Hello, and welcome to Blackbot's Green Room, a podcast presented by Dirty Rascals. In this series, we give writers a chance to air their dirty laundry, otherwise known as their bottom of the draw plates. This week, I do and don't have my co-host Dan because my co-host Dan is also my guest Dan. Hello Dan. Hiya, how's it going? Yeah, good. How does it feel to be on the other side of the proverbial and literal mic? Feels strangely empty not having a third guest here. It does. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so tell us a bit about Chekhov's gun. Um... So, like, synopsis-wise, basically, uh, there's some people who work in a warehouse. Um, they get delivered a gun uh, through the post, and then it's kind of up to them to deal with it. Um, it's based on the theatrical notion that if there's a gun in the first act of a play, then by the third act it should go off, which was something that um, I hope not apocryphally was uh, assigned to Chekhov. Um, yeah, and basically these guys just kind of have a chat about their life um, in the interim, but mostly it's uh, kind of a back and forth of how to deal with the situation of having a gun there. Um, in terms of how it came about, um, I was writing at uni, so this is about four years ago now that I wrote this, um, and I think for some reason that particular notion captured my attention, um, and I know it was paired with like this desire to like do lots of simultaneous speech on stage um in this i guess quest for like naturalism or something cool well with that let's go to a clip and hear some of the play the phone rings they look at the gun a answers the phone howdy uh didn't check hey pal who's it to what who's it to who's the gun for it says uh, care of a check of Care of A. Chekhov. Chekhov, yeah, Chekhov. Alright. A puts down a phone. That's weird, isn't it? Well, well yeah, there's a fucking gun on no, the chair. No, I mean the so, name. Yeah, I'd say it's a weird fucking Yeah, I know, I know. Pal, the name, the though, least. it's Anton Chekhov. What? Anton Chekhov, mate, you know. What? The playwright? What? You fucking philistine. You don't know oh, who Anton Chekhov no, is. No, look, pal, I don't need your fucking hoity-toity <laughs> shit, you theatre-going yeah, yeah. pinko Calm twat. down, mate, calm down. No, what fucking playwright? Calm down, I'm in? only having a go. You are having a go. No, I'm just putting your leg. Right. Right. Are you sure on that one? Really? Anton Chekhov? You don't know it? Ah, go fuck yourself. So, uh, there's a bit of the aforementioned simultaneous speech. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, do you want to talk to a bit about, like, about those characters and about maybe their voices and how maybe they differ from what you expected when you first wrote the piece? I have to say, um, so the character that, that Tom's playing, the um, the guy who, who who calls the other guy a philistine, it's hard to refer to because in the script I was so fucking lazy, I just labelled them A and B. Um, so technically um, the character B uh, calls character A a philistine. And yeah, definitely in that clip he comes across like, way less I don't know like I, I can't identify with him very well he just seems like kind of a dickhead um so that that's kind of different but I think probably that's an accurate expression of what that character is in the script it's a little bit jarring for me because I think um out of all the characters B is probably most similar to me um and maybe 
I think <laughs> maybe that's highlighting some stuff about me that like <laughs> is true and hard to realize. Um, I mean, we can go there, Dan, if we need we- to go there. <laughs> Um, you know, there's probably some truth in that, but, um, that's, that's immediately the, the biggest thing that, that sticks out for me. Um, and I think I've heard you say before with this, with this play that like with a lot of the characters, there's a sense in which you feel there's some part of yourself that you recognize in them. And that is, is that something that's like important to you whenever you write, or is that something that's kind of just in this play a bit or I'll be honest. I think that probably comes from having, uh, I don't know, maybe there are writers out there who are able to just like completely put themselves in other people's shoes and that's a genuine thing. For me, I can't really do that. I feel like that's probably like something I lack um, in that, you know, I need to have some kind of self-focused thing to be able to write through a character. Um, so I think that's probably where that comes from. It's just like not really having anything else to go off. So I have to just kind of like take parts of myself and then like just work with that um it's not like i'm like oh i'll create this character based on like this one facet of myself but it's just a way of being like how can i make this voice different to that voice um picking a characteristic that i can work with which is usually something that i see in myself and then just kind of going down that road and see where it takes me and with the the overlapping speech you mentioned before you you that it was something to do with naturalism. Just speak a bit more to that and like what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know why it seemed so important to me at the time, but for some reason I just had this this problem with like plays, films, whatever, having people wait for each other. Um, I mean, we do it in the podcast as well. Like we wait for each other. We don't talk over each other that much because like the listening experience is obviously hampered when people are like, if everyone's talking at once, you can't hear what's going on. It doesn't work. Um, That's true. (laughs) So it seemed to me important somehow to give what wasn't being given in, in real life. I don't really know what reason I have for wanting that to come out like it's not like I have like a further justification for why that should be there I think that it's an interesting thing that we kind of might come back to throughout this play but there are certain things which feel like decisions which were about theatrical convention which I think potentially hamper the piece and there are certain things that were organic and maybe came as a result of your experience which I think weren't necessarily choices but really are what kind of shines in this piece um one thing that stands out to me and actually it wasn't in that clip it comes before that clip is um uh, there's an instruction that A speaks with less of an accent. So A is originally written as, as a Scottish character and they speak with less of an accent when they're on the phone. What is the reason for that? Or like, what are you trying to kind of point out there, do you think? Um, I think primarily I was recalling uh, my experience working in a place very similar to the setting. Um, I was kind of more in the office than in the warehouse. I spent about half my time in each. Um, and certainly when I was in the warehouse, I felt more able to just kind of like be who I was. Um, there wasn't a need to like put on a character or anything to kind of convince people that you're worth talking to or that they should buy things off you. Whereas in the office on the phone, there is this, obviously there, there's a thing of like needing to be heard or whatever. Um, and there's definitely... There was definitely that pressure to to speak 
uh, more poshly. Um, yeah, that's that's one nice nugget I think that comes out of this play. Like yeah. like you say, it's like a genuine expression of something that happens in real life rather than something that's obsessed with or interested in like th- the constructions of theatre. So it's like it's a way of like dragging that um, that concern or that that loss of your own identity out or something. Cool. All right. Well, with that, let's go on to another clip and hear a bit more from the gang. B enters with boxes. Who's is it? We don't know. No, put the fucking. Can you put thing it down? Down. No. Where'd it come from? A box. No, put the gun down. A box. Tell him to put it down. No, calm down. He's not going to shoot no, it. Just put it down, you fucking dog. Well, look we at did. the label, a, you silly twat. It's a joke. Put the fucking. It says gun it's to check up. Put it down, you cunt. A approaches D with a utility knife in hand. D points the gun at A. Well there. Put it put down, it down now. now. Calm it. You're not going to go killing each other. Everyone put your weapons down. Weapons? This is... He's got a fucking gun. Wait, to Chekhov? Yeah. Chekhov's gun? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the only thing I remember fondly about working in a lighting wholesaler. Um, is like being able to like go to the back of the warehouse and like have some fun like fuck about a bit roll up balls of paper and throw them into a bin or throw them at each other um the guy who i worked in the warehouse with was like this like complete like militant marxist so if ever there was like anything that was bugging me in the office i could always like go down there and have a chat with him and he'd just like go off on one about like capitalism and stuff um i think like that kind of like element of uh fun in a workplace is something that i rarely think about like work is not fun or at least work that you get paid money for is not fun um but sometimes you get little glints like that and i think all right, they're in a very stressful situation. Um, or maybe D is making it stressful by, like, fucking about with a gun. Um, but there's something really nice about the way that Curran, the actor playing him, kind of, like, brings out the playful side within that. Cool, let's go on to another clip. Where have you been anyway, mate? D still looks at A. Uh, you know. Just thought I'd grab a quick shower in my lunch, but the bloody thing, there's no in-between. It's either scalding or freezing. I keep telling you, give him 20 quid. He's handy with a spanner. Nah, wouldn't want to put you to any trouble now, would I, mate? A shakes his head. D starts unpacking. What are you going to do with it, then? Does the boss know? Aye, the boss knows. Okay. Yeah. Right, then. Suppose we just wait for the boss, then. Yep. I'll start shelving, then, shall I? There's more boxes outside. Uh, I wouldn't want to get in your way. I'll leave you two to it. D exits, taking unpacked goods with him. Twat. Hmm? I hate when he does that. Does what? When he shelves other stuff before packing orders come through. Well, it's just a different way of doing it. Nah, it's the wrong way is what it is. Gotta go fetch it all later. And when the orders come through, gotta go traipsing around now, taking forever. B exits. So, like, before... So, very briefly, obviously... uh... I'm doing the stage directions there, and I, I, I just, I don't know, that there is something, I think you mentioning it at the start is making me think about it, like, all the stuff that's concerned about, like, the way 
theatre conventions are is what I was thinking about the entire time. And actually what is remotely interesting about this play, um, and I emphasise remotely, uh, is like the reality of the situation. Like that's where the realness is, not like the way that people talk to each other or whatever. Like the interesting realness anyway is like in the particularities and... I have to say, it really fucking fucked me off whenever anyone would, like, try and shelve things away before we'd, like, sent stuff out. Because, like, a lot of the time you get stuff in that you've only bought in so that you can send it on. Like, you're just a middleman, like, and it just, like, it arrives, you pack it in a different box. You put your own, like, invoice or packing order or whatever on it and you send it on and that's how you make a profit. And, like, when people fucking put stuff like that, somewhere in a warehouse and you've got to like try and find it and it's usually something weird so you wouldn't even know where to start looking for it that proper did fuck me off so like there's that's nice at least there, there's something nice in there that i don't know someone might actually connect with it does manage to get like some kind of reflection of what work life is 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 really like um especially when you're at the bottom of the rung like you, all you do is like move boxes here and there and like send them out take them in and send them out that like the way you're treated means you're unable to assess situations with an independent mind like if a gun arrives you're unable to think as an independent person this is an illegal weapon i should call the police you're like treated in such a way that like all you do is like perform manual tasks that would be a waste of time for management to do so, like, all you do is operate, like, as a body of the management. So, like, when you're tasked with, like, having to react as a real human being to something, your only reaction is just, like, I don't know, ask the boss, what would the boss say? I'll do whatever they do. Because the punishments for doing otherwise in most situations are, like, severe. Like, you get reprimanded for the smallest bullshit in that kind of job. Um, so your reaction tends to, or my reaction anyway, has been, like, before I do anything, I ask the boss what to do, basically. Unless it's been explicitly explained to me what, what to do before. So I think, like, their whole dynamic here, or A, B and D's dynamic, is kind of, like, representative of, I guess, the way I feel about those kind of workplaces and, and what I feel is, like, the, the truth of how they train you to be, which maybe is why it didn't feel so unbelievable to me to write this scenario at all. Um, cool. Let's go to another clip. Do you like salted or unsalted butter on toast? I don't put butter on toast. You what? Yeah, I just don't like it. You've got to have butter on toast. Look at you, you're all skin and bones anyway. It's not that. I just don't like it. That's unacceptable, mate. You can't not like butter. What do you put on toast then? Jam. What do you put on before the jam? Nothing. Just jam, straight on toast? Yeah. That's not natural, that. If you had to choose, though. Probably unsalted. Bloody Puritan. <laughs> you? Mm? Salted or not? Salted. But mum usually buys the unsalted because of her heart. Right. How is she? well enough okay right I've got a few bugbears here alright go on number one 
if you're having jam on toast, why are you putting butter underneath it? Like, this whole page was me trying to get into the head of someone who disagreed with me, but, like, it's already, like, a wet thing that you're put on, putting on toast. Why the butter doesn't, like, add anything in that. This, it just adds fat. It just makes you unhealthy. Like, it doesn't do anything. If you're passionate about butter <laughs> on toast before jam, please do let us know. You're going to get, like, so many downvotes or whatever yeah. the fuck the system is. Um, right, secondly, if you're going to have butter... Why are you getting salted butter? Why does salt need to be involved? It's like stuff that comes out of a cow and then like you let it do whatever, you churn it and shit and then like you make butter. For some reason you want butter, I don't know, you're doing bacon. But if you want salt involved, you can add salt. Like if the bacon that you're doing requires salt, I just don't understand like if you're just putting it on toast, why you'd want salt involved. I don't, I don't get it. And if you did, put salt, just salted butter shouldn't be a thing. Like you can always add salt later. So I was trying to, like, get into this headspace of, like, what if I was really passionate the other way, right? So I'll just, like, do that. Um, and also, what if you really liked the thing I think is the most pointless thing in the world, which is salted butter? Two things I think are, like, stupid jammed together. Um, or two levels of stupidness. And you were, like, that you couldn't have that. Because, like, for some reason. And, like, what a drain that would be in your life. Um, but immediately got distracted by the possibility of then, like, writing something that's, like, I don't know, like, not a tender moment, but, like, a moment of, like, realness. Um, which, incidentally, I think is the way that, like, a lot of people who are maybe not like me, um, I don't know, I'm very, like, eager to say, oh, no, I'm very open about my feelings and I talk a lot. But then equally, I'm totally not. That's a complete lie. I hide my feelings like 99% <laughs> of the time. Um, but like, I guess I have the vocabulary to talk about my feelings in a way that like can appear open. I just choose not to most of the time. Um, and I feel like anything deep like, oh shit, how's your mum's illness going? Will only come about for a lot of people um, when like there's a reason to bring it up or like it seems to flow from the conversation i don't know my family like especially growing up we didn't we wouldn't just like apropos of nothing be like yo how's your mental health or whatever um or like how is nan's health or i don't know so like i realize now that that's a totally okay thing to do but like i think other people probably had a fairly similar upbringing to me in that way and like i i definitely feel like talking about your mom's heart condition would only happen if you had like something of a naturalish segue it's a bit loose but yeah let's go to another clip nobody does everybody just calls things ironic and hope nobody calls them out on their bullshit oh, so call me out then uh, no i'm not gonna that's exactly my point though exactly. i don't know if it's not ironic so i'm not gonna call you out acting like i do know i'm just saying do you do i what do you know if it's actually ironic or are you just saying it is and hoping no one says nothing you know, that's what everyone's doing all the time, just saying this and that, whatever they like, not caring if it's making sense or hurting people or nothing. They don't know nothing, and they're just saying it's ironic to cover themselves. Used to be people could never say, I don't know. You know, just answering questions, making stuff up, saying the question's wrong or whatever. Just say you don't know if you don't fucking know. Now, people don't even wait for a question to act like a bleeding idiot. They just come out with, 
you know, saying stuff they don't know nothing about and calling it ironic. Look, I'm not saying you're wrong or anything. I'm just asking us all. So do you then? Do you? Well? Is it ironic? The curry is it. Thought so. What? I said I thought so. That, like, whole... I don't know, I've got a number of things to say about this. Same, Um, First off, that whole speech feels very contrived. Um, this is why I kind of winced when I heard it then. Um, the, however, an element of... Again, why is truth important? I don't know why it's important, but an element of truth that's in it is like this whole thing of people being unable to say I don't know anymore when they don't know something. I don't know what this is, but this is something my dad like went on about as a kid. I remember he just found it like so annoying. Like he had this whole like I don't know if it's true or not, but he had this whole idea that anyone who worked in like any kind of selling capacity, whether they were just in a shop or they were an estate agent, like if you asked them a question, they would like bullshit you and rather than just say, I don't know, I'll find that out for you. Um, and, like, he's got this contention that, like, it used to be different. That, like, when he was younger, people would say, I don't know, I'll find that out for you. Um, or even just, I don't know. And that was it. You're stuck. You don't know. Um, he'd probably now, if I asked him about it, go on to, like, some grand theory about how, like, this is something to do with Google or whatever, and now because we're so used to finding information all the time, like we have to like know the answer to everything. Like, I don't, I don't know, but like, there's an element of truth in there in that, like that whole thing, that whole part of that rant is something genuine. Um, but its placement in the play feels contrived. The length it goes on for feels contrived. The, like, attempt at segueing in and out feels contrived. I don't know. I just, like... It feels like... Hearing it back, it feels like I had a point I wanted to make and jammed it in the play, and that is not at all the case. Like, the stuff coming out of A's mouth isn't, like, some point I wanted to make. Cool. I think let's go to our last clip, and, and with that, we'll be able to think a little bit more about the structure of the piece as a whole before we wrap up. I'm sorry, mate. How are you? I've had better afternoons, thanks. Yeah, I'm really sorry. You'll be all right, though. D goes to pick up the gun. Whoa, there. What do you think you're doing? A tries to prevent D. Get the fuck out of my way. Calm down, stop it, mate. Just stop it, you fucking... Get out of my way! No! They tussle. D gets the better of A. D picks up the gun and threatens the others, then points it to himself. Whoa, what, what the fuck? Mate, mate, mate. Oh, Jesus. Just stop, mate. Shut up. I work just as hard as you and get no respect. They don't trust me with anything. I still live at home for... I still live at home for fuck's sake! You two crack me up. What are you on about? Put the gun down, will ya? Like I'm gonna top myself over a shit job with you cunts. It's not even loaded, is it? Uh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, psycho. You fucking psycho. How dare you? That's not fucking funny, that. Yes, it was. So yeah, I guess, like, it's interesting because, like, even though, like, a lot of the play, almost, like, in a way that, like, we were describing earlier, like, 
that this is a situation where the gun can kind of get ignored because of the warehouse and stuff. Uh, for a lot of it, like, it's kind of been there, but not really where. And then here's this kind of moment where I get, we kind of get a promise of, like, it might go off on purpose in a way which is, like, really, and then it doesn't happen. And, like, yeah, I just wonder what you thought about that and if it's something. Yeah, I mean, a few things spring to mind. I, I've always struggled with action, basically. Um, like, with things happening on, on stage. I just, I'm not very good with, like... Um, I think escalating drama or tension through action. Like, I feel like I can escalate drama or tension through words okay, but, like, with with action, it just feels, like, way too fast or people aren't reacting right to things. And I definitely feel like this is kind of, like, naught to 60, back to naught, and then, like, up to 20. But, like, it just feels messy. It feels, like, real, real messy. Um, uh... So yeah, I I, th- I think that I think again like this just kind of shows me that what you're saying about like the interesting stuff basically the 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 stuff I'm doing to try and address the theatrical convention of Chekhov's gun here feels again contrived and like just poorly handled like the pacing just feels really off um and like ostensibly there's drama because it's like oh fuck a gun might go off and like we've been in a situation where we've been able to ignore it and now we can't ignore it but like um i don't think i don't think it it hits what it's trying to hit because of the fact that it feels like poorly handled like i don't think you can take it too seriously uh when you're supposed to because everything's just like jumps up too quickly um and then comes down immediately as soon as it hits that height and like there's no room for like the tension to sit in this um it's a bit just like oh a jump scare and then we take it away immediately and the threat's gone and like i don't think there's a sense that the gun actually has the danger that it sh- that it should feel like it has um yeah yeah i think i think it's interesting because i think that like up to this point like the gun has functioned as something which we believe maybe might go off in a in a sort of accidental way and like the warehouse world has been set up in a way where that you say like action isn't really like a I don't know action isn't very common in a very like shifting gears way like kind of like we were talking about earlier that you kind of follow orders there isn't really much space for like real different action um and I think that there is something about this where there's the potential for like um, uh, like a kind of a Hollywood vocabulary or like a kind of like a faux like this is how action happens where like there's a big shift and everyone goes in that direction but I do agree with you I think that it feels it feels a bit halfway between like parodying that um, and and like trying to commit to that yeah. um, which I think I bet I, like like you say it's interesting because like um, in in a way that might be similar in like other works and like when we were speaking to to Dan Cook on the other podcast as well this idea of like the unresolved and like what's left and like what questions there are it feels like it's something that needs to be addressed by you as a writer and it feels like something that needs to be addressed by the people on stage um I was trying to I was trying to disaddress something that I was being told to address right like something important and symbolic is there you have to like address that and let it do the thing that it's supposed to be doing. Um, so if a gun is there, it has to be shot. Um, but in trying to disaddress it, 
I didn't commit fully to disaddress like disaddressing it would be like this huge thing happens and then like it literally gets ignored like that would be the actual thing but what I did was like focus everything on it but then like still like manage to get to a weird place where it doesn't get shot mm. but still focus so much attention on it and get mm. as close as possible to having it be shot whereas I think if I'd committed to my rejection of this like mantra that a gun has to go off, the reality of that would be like it being introduced in a really important and like symbolic and everyone's focuses on it in that kind of way. And then then getting to a place where it's just like completely in the background and everyone's forgotten about it. Um, so I think in my own writing, I've kind of tried to get a handle more on... Um, on like if something needs focus then like go full hog basically just committing basically mm. that's what uh, that's where my writing or where i'm trying to get to whereas um in this i guess i was just kind of like less sure on what it means to commit and thinking i was committing but actually like completely sitting in the middle like um and what uh, and like I think if I'd committed fully to what I was what I thought was important at the time about this, um, then then it would have been like a completely different play and probably a far more interesting direction to have gone in, because in ignoring the gun, we would have got to see far more of something else with these characters in this arena, which I think your clips have helpfully showed me that there is like something interesting too well i guess on that uh, we'll come to the end of the podcast where we always ask our writers uh whether or not they're interested in honing or disowning uh their plays so thinking about the idea of like where there might be um things that you might want to work on or or not what, what are your thoughts with this play i'm gonna say disown but it's a very different disown than i expected to say okay um i expected to say disown it because it's shit and that just be like the full stop but I'm going to say disown because I don't think... So I think before I would have said disown it, it's shit. Like, the whole Chekhov's gun focus is bollocks. But my focus is now not on, like, the whole Chekhov and the gun and all that kind of theatrical convention shit. My focus is on the characters and the place. And I think there's something interesting going on there. But I still don't think... I still think I should disown it on those grounds because, like... I don't actually think I'm saying anything of value just because it's like a real reflection of the way that certain people in, in um, these kind of situations in this sector of society can react. And if I worked on it, if I honed it, like I could probably like get a nice kitchen sink play that has nothing to do with middle class people in a kitchen, but way more to do with working class people in a warehouse. I still don't think that's something that have any interest in doing for its own sake like sure it might be real and truthful but I don't really know what it would be doing by virtue of that um and maybe that's just because I'm in more of a political state of mind at the moment especially with regard to theatre work um but it's a much happier disown than I expected mm. to be saying I think that's interesting and I think also that like recognizing that given your interest or like your emerging interest in contemporary performance as opposed to like performance which is uh, steeped in like more typical theatrical convention, it makes sense that obviously the Chekhov's gun stuff isn't as relevant. 
I do wonder whether or not there is something in um, the thing that you've identified as potentially valuable that might cross over into the contemporary performance practice um, that you're engaged with, whether that might be in terms of um, creating environments like this um, and creating situations like this um, in more like uh, live art contexts or whether these kind of things can be jumping off points for like other kinds of uh, performance making or performance experiences. Um, because I think that for me, I think that even though the um, there might be this question of like, you might feel like the offer isn't strong enough of just writing a play like that and, and putting it on. I think that if you've identified something that it feels like it resonates in terms of the way that humans interact, the way that communications functions, the way that, um, I think in particular for me, um, what resonates is the way that like, uh, like the work environment um, kind of distorts like human activity and human relationships. And I think that that's something that could very easily fit into like all kinds of different performance relationships and performance context, um, which might be worth exploring. But I think I probably I probably could also agree that like this only at this stage, given where you're at and what you're doing, makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Like there's there's stuff about work environments being weird. There's stuff about just dropping something dangerous into a space, mm. um, which is definitely obviously you have to treat it with attention and care and actually figure that shit out. You can't just be like, oh, now I'm putting a gun in a room of a bunch of audience members. But within the realm of contemporary performance, um, you can set boundaries where you can throw something dangerous in a space. It doesn't have to be a dangerous object. Um, it can be like a concept or a feeling or whatever and really interesting stuff can come out of that and I think there's um, there's definitely something to be gained from uh, maybe keeping the kind of focus that introducing a gun into a warehouse has like stripping it to something simple I'm going to introduce this dangerous thing into this audience there's something there's something neat in having that as like a, a some kind of focal point for your work. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It was nice to talk to you. And uh, next time you'll be with me and we'll be talking to someone else. Um, hopefully, as, as long as uh, <laughs> writers are willing to go through this process. Dan, uh, having done this, uh, how do you feel? What would you what would you say to writers to convince them to come on the podcast? Um, I've come to be, to be honest, like this conversation more. And we've talked about this play a fair amount but this conversation yeah. is like full disclosure we have recorded a version of this podcast where we did read read the whole play and it was terrible um so we have had this a similar sort of chat before yeah yeah and like um yeah i just i i think about it in a very different way now i think this conversation has made me see what you've been saying all along um so uh yeah questions make you think who knew being being drilled on something would actually make you make you think and possibly change the way you, you view your own work? So that is my recommendation. If you want to challenge yourself, yeah, come chat to Pav. Guys, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Um, cool. And we're gonna go into credits. Our actors this episode were Pavlos Krisadulu, Karen Gill, Howard Horner, Tom McQueen, Daniel Spicer, and Jeremy Wong. Sound engineering, editing, and design was by David Denyer. Produced by Pavlos Christodoulou and Daniel Spicer and executive produced by Dirty Rascals Theatre and Jeremy Wong.
Bum, 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 bum,